Hey, this is the Green Blues Show. The latest news, a bit of blues. Today, a food forest in Palestine. Down in the basement of a big French hospital, fabulous bottles of wine. And what to do with earth-warming CO2? Turn it into stone. Welcome to the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. The discovery of a little planet 11 light years away is rousing excitement in the astronomy world. The rocky object, discerned entirely from the way it makes its illuminating star wobble, is about the size of planet Earth, but denser, therefore with higher gravitation. The little rock is also 20 times closer to its star, around which it revolves every 9.9 days than we are to our sun. Thankfully, the star is a red dwarf, therefore cooler than ours. The average surface temperature of this far-off planet is calculated to lie in the minus 60 to plus 20 range, almost like Winnipeg. In this temperature-sweet spot, water is liquid, and life, therefore, very likely. The million-dollar question, is there molecular oxygen in the planet's atmosphere? If there is, living things have to have put it there. It's nice to think about life on other planets. Not necessarily intelligent life, although that would be remarkable. Just a living world with zero human involvement. Ergo, no plastic, no pollution, no human noise or nuisances, no human economic or political paradigms, no human footprint. Another experiment of one, far out there, where the current incarnation of the human species will never go. This is the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. You make up in a moon. Chicken, chicken. You're mad by the moon. Don't go on your night, chicken. I never let a power be. Ten thousand dollars worth, but if I wanna, you don't root too high for me. I got to thinking about chicken late last night. Man, I couldn't hardly rest. I jumped out of bed, got up my own shoes, all the while so chicken was ass. I grabbed big popcorn, stuck in my arm, something I never let fall. I don't think I'll rob your head out till I get your roof full, chicken and all. I'm not chicken, oh, chicken. How you make a up in the front of the dog going, chicken? Chicken. I never let a power be. 
Why, that fool, he wrecked me last Friday night. You couldn't think of what to look about. I'm going down there the way I lived there. I lot of chicken tied in my house. Say, you may carry me to the friend that you want. I go to work out my time. I just quickly put me on. Dead and then tackle out chickens on my mind. That makes me such Oh, chicken, you make four walks in the bottom dog road. Chicken, tell me I'd find the moon. Now, chicken, I never let a fire with me. $10,000 watch for the fire with me. He don't root too high for me. That was Chicken You Can Roost Behind the Moon, the Beale Street Sheiks were Frank Stokes and Dan Sane on guitars, the Stokes on vocals, recorded in Chicago in September 1927. This is the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. This past spring, I had the high pleasure of visiting a friend and befriend a few more in the town of Beit Jala, just east of Bethlehem in occupied Palestine, Vivian Sansour's Seed Rescue Project in nearby Batir was the subject of a Green Planet Monitor report last year. These days, Vivian is growing a food forest on the backyard terrace of her family's home, perched atop Beit Jala. Nazareth native Mohammed Saleh is helping out. Here we're in Beit Jala. Uh, in cooperation with the Seed Library, my friend Vivian Sansour uh, wanted uh, to actually start growing the heirloom seeds that she collects herself. Uh, the way she worked before is giving seeds to people and especially to farmers to grow them and give them back every year. It's not a bank, it's a library. It's just like taking a book and giving back that book. In this sense, giving back a new seed next year. But here we take her uh, parents' uh, garden, quite a large space, that have a bit of old uh, plants, trees and uh, grapes, and uh, a lot of open area uh, that is open for potential. So we started with uh, the group of uh, people who were interested to actually learn this knowledge, uh, foreigners and locals. Uh, and we started to do this garden bit by bit, uh, applying a design as we go, thinking about it, noticing how, uh, what's the condition of nature, the sun and the wind and, and the kind of soil and so on, so we can work up our way from there. Uh, so far we decided to go for uh, the annual gardens where you, we grow these seeds of Vivian and at the same time to develop the perennial garden towards a food forest where you have all kind of food plants that looks uh, that imitates the forest in the way they work in the symbiotic relationships between them and as well in the in the in the architecture of the forest which is like seven layers from a very high tree to a crown cover to even a root crop uh, so all these layers in between are uh, uh, we have only one uh, or two in this garden, the tree and the climbers, so, and we will add more like five or six more layers to give it a forest uh, look and also to get it work like a forest where it builds itself uh, a long time uh, even without any intervention. It just will build up itself and will give us food, more and more food every year. And these are fruit trees? 
fruit trees, uh, fruit plants, all of them. That's why it's called a food forest because uh, uh, every plant or at least 75% of the plants are plants that provide food. The rest can be plants that nurse, we call, which is take care of these food plants until they are established. Mohammed, yesterday evening I was uh, staying just outside the Damascus Gate in Jerusalem and I went out and you know there's a big market <coughs> there on yeah. Fridays and I was uh, astonished there was just it was a major market with just lots of produce mm. lots of tomatoes and mm. cucumbers and cauliflower and mm. melons and mm. zucchini and just mm. in massive profusion mm. and all of them in boxes cardboard boxes with Israeli writing on mm. them mm. all this food came from industrial Mm. industrial food production sites in Israel, am so, I correct? Yeah, I wouldn't answer as, a, as like an expert in statistics, but I would know, I would say a few comments about this. Uh, first of all, uh, the cardboard uh, boxes doesn't mean that uh, that is the company that produced that vegetable. It might be just a box that is very convenient to use, so you use it, you put your st stuff in it. So if you're buying from a, a, an independent farmer, like all these women that come from the villages, you will know they grew these things themselves in their houses and they brought it in these cardboard boxes. But if we're talking in general, uh, I always talk about that in my uh, lectures or talks, how actually more than 90% of our food now in the vegetable shop is uh, sold by Israel doesn't mean it was grown all, only by Israel, but it's sold by Israel. Sometimes it's grown by Palestinian farmers in Palestinian lands, but uh, uh, they were actually uh, uh, doing all that for an employer, an Israeli employer. Uh, so many of the Israeli produce can be produced in the West Bank using no regulations, using GMO seeds, using chemicals, all kinds of pesticides and sold as if it's an Israeli produce while it's not. Uh, because Israel, the Israeli regulations won't allow most of these things, but they take Palestine as a free area to play and then sell it without actually uh, any uh, control. Uh, but this is a very important uh, uh, topic. It's not that uh, a Palestinian produce is missing, but getting it to the market is a tricky thing, usually for farmers uh, and uh, for grassroots uh, organizations and things like that. So it's important for us to search for those in the meanwhile, because there are some people who sell organic fair trade in Palestine in very affordable prices. Uh, so if I as a farmer can get to those and sell my products, they take all my produce because there's actually no, uh, 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 the demand is not few at all. The demand is really good. Uh, the only problem is uh, uh, the, the, the connection between the producer and the distributor. And these di distributors even don't gain for themselves. They actually uh, uh, gain from uh, only, like they only get their salary to, f to function, to get this organization of fair trade organic to function. But more than that, they keep it 
all the profit, they keep all the respectful profit for the Palestinian local farmers. So this is a, this is a reality that we need to work towards from actually consuming uh, the products of our occupiers to actually uh, growing our own and relying on ourselves because nature is much more generous than any company. It gives you one seed, put uh, put in the ground gives you a whole bush of tomatoes every tomato have let's say hundreds of seeds and every seed is another bush with so many tomatoes and and thousands of seeds so i think this is the way to go to put our hand in the hand of nature again like we did in the past and you see this as having a political dimension fighting the occupation i i think uh, uh, occupation today is capitalism itself so it's not something specific for Palestine, it's everywhere. I mean, in America, you see the people waking up to use permaculture in 2007, 2008, after the crisis, uh, the financial crisis, people realize they're very vulnerable. The, all their resources is suddenly gone. And this is the way in Palestine, we actually live it, where in the West Bank, water arrives only two days a week where electricity is only generated by Israel and we're not allowed since 67 to generate our own electricity. So all these resources that we rely on and we're very vulnerable in being dependent on somebody else to produce it for us is, is, is time to change. It's time to change that. So I think everywhere, any person everywhere acting towards self-sufficiency is actually working against the major occupation in 2017 in 21st century, which is capitalism itself. Show me the food forest. Let's let's walk around. Yeah. So there is uh, the situation we are in and the situation we want to reach to. Uh, when I looked at the land from the top, I realized that in the middle here, exactly where we stand now, uh, there is kind of an island right in the middle of the uh, uh, land that goes for at least uh, 50 meters of a few plants that people planted here and there and they are all perennial. So we're starting with the, the family of almonds, going to grapes, going to a citrus, going to a fig, to, going to a loquat, to an olive, to a loquat again, and so on. So all this strip I would develop in a way that I will add more and more of the layers we talked about, layers of plants that are lower than a tree. Uh, like bushes and shrubs and ground covers and uh, root crops. Um, that enjoy the shade. That enjoy... Actually, uh, you can plant them in a way that they will not be in the shade. If we have shade, we put plants that enjoy the shade. Uh, but the most important thing is that we actually occupy the ground, as we say, and in this sense, in a positive way, because nature all the time wants to be occupied with a plant. Soil, earth want to be occupied with a plant. So we are going towards not leaving, actually, a bare soil, but covering it with plants from artichoke to asparagus to uh, strawberries to uh, uh, radishes, uh, uh, plants that die and uh, plants that mostly stay like perennials. Uh, so this strip in the middle will be the place where actually you will have very low maintenance. Just food is provided for you by the season from all these layers. Under it, like to the, to the uh, east and the west from it, we will create uh, beds to grow the the seed uh, the seeds of the seed library the heirloom seeds and we started with one and today we will create uh, we will create up to four on this section and we will see when we go down the hill how many uh, more we will grow 
So this food forest is uh, will will have like hundreds of plants, and when people, I would say, I would imagine, I would even imagine thousands of plants. Uh, people get surprised when I talk about that, but actually, one tree can uh, bear a lot of plants under or in between two trees, while we're losing usually this space. Uh, uh, for no reason putting a tree and a tree five meters away and all the way between them is just empty why not to use it and when we use it and we grow in it uh, plants we actually help these two trees that are on the edges because when you have plants in the middle you have root system you have mushrooms you have soil building you have all these positive things happening just exactly like how a forest wouldn't be fertilized wouldn't be uh, weeded wouldn't be uh, watered nothing and it's just growing so we can imitate the natural processes to reach there at the same time provide so much food for ourselves look at this small tree lokwat tree that is actually coming from uh, from the tropics i saw it in places where uh, the degrees can go down to minus 20 and still bearing fruit and i saw it in places that are almost like a desert and it gives so much uh, fruits that are so delicious uh, to eat it's like the childhood tree for me where i was always on that tree with all these small pieces uh, falling apart in my clothes when uh, you were a kid when i was a kid is my childhood tree i was always there and my father growing up where growing up in nazareth so there's so much fruit on on uh, on this tree one tree can provide to three families and from experience is totally enough the same for the fig tree and we buy them from the shop they're expensive they needed so much energy to transport to keep cool and all these kind of things people to pick them up while one tree in your garden providing food for three families but all these all these trees that we're looking at here that are palestinian traditional native palestinian trees are uh, they bear within themselves stories human stories and mm. cultural stories mm. Uh, that, that points of reference that bring you back to your own childhood. Mm. So agriculture is human culture. Yeah, yeah. Of course, that's why permaculture as a, as a as a as a movement is not about agriculture. While every like most people perceive it like that, it's about permanent culture, about creating cultures that are permanent in themselves, that are relying on themselves. So self-sustaining. Self-sustaining themselves is very important because we're reaching the place where actually the globe is so connected now, but it's all all connected with uh, uh, the industrial uh, through industrial connections, not through actually people where they live connected to themselves, making communities and building up themselves, sharing what they have. Exactly what actually our ancestors did. It's really perfect format and we can use them today in a different way to live our the way we want we don't need to live the same like them it's going towards from le from from learning what was so uh, uh, this is uh, this is uh, this is very important and also to learn from nature itself because nature is always changing 
So we're not talking about something stable. Uh, uh, all this global warming and things makes you makes you actually work with nature in a different way. Grow your own seeds, breed your own seeds, as they say, so that the seeds are uh, used to land that are more hot or more cold or more windy or 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 or, or because that's the way we should go. Work with nature uh, to to make the evolution work for us and for it. Vivian Sansur. We're here in my family home in uh, Bejala, and what we're trying to do is uh, make a food forest in the backyard. Uh, we are in a unique situation here because this is one of the last remaining terraces uh, in Bejala, actually, with uh, after Oslo, with the divisions of Area A, C, and B, we, we fell in Area A, and uh, all the agricultural areas surrounding uh, Beit Jala and Bethlehem uh, have been designated as Area C, and that left uh, no space for people to grow and build, and so everybody's building on top of these ancient terraces, uh, which is quite a disaster. Uh, we're lucky here that we still have this plot of land um, and it's one of the last remaining few. There's this one and that one and, and this one here, but um, the, the number of terraces is significantly shrinking in Bethlehem. Just because within Area A there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of space, so people are building developments on top of what was once terraced agricultural land. Yes, so you can get mad at people, but at the same time, you kind of understand that people want to live. They want a space to live. Uh, and um, so many people are building these uh, um, towers with apartments, uh, but it's being built on biodiversity. It's being built on uh, uh, really ancient varieties of um, apricots, uh, almonds, olives, and many other things. Uh, and it's really you know, damaging to soil, but there's not a lot of soil left. That's the problem. So uh, it's, it's, it's the product, you know, we have to understand this within the greater context. So it's a product of a political reality and a global reality. So that's what's happening. And uh, like I said, we are fortunate that we have this space here, and we don't know how long we'll have it, but hopefully we'll have it for many, 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 many years to come. And uh, in order to take advantage of this opportunity, we are uh, making this food forest. And uh, it's really wonderful because also what makes this plot of land, this terrace here, very unique, not only that it's one of the last remaining terraces, but it's actually one of the very, very few terraces that has never been sprayed. So it's actually um, <laughs> virgin lands, if you will, in terms of the soil is really alive. There's just so much organic matter in the soil. Uh, th we also have many varieties of very old and, and, and local varieties of almonds, artichoke, uh, lemon, um, 
uh, olives, uh, uh, quads, <laughs> just so many different things that are living together in this space. And we have um, rosemary and uh, roses and jasmines. So it's really a very special place. Uh, this here, for example, is one of my favorite trees. It's called the Butme in Arabic. Its Latin name and botanical name is Pistachia palestina. And it's one of uh, the trees that are living in the Mesopotamian area. Uh, actually, in mostly Lebanon and Palestine, which explains the name, Pistachia palestina. Uh, and so I, I love it. It gives a lot of shade. and. I'm learning more and more every day from our elders that uh, actually people use uh, the seeds of this tree to make uh, flour, which could be really an amazing option for people who have gluten intolerance. But it's delicious if you if you crunch on the seeds when they're still green. So what are you, what are you doing here? Uh, here I am drawing uh, the plan for our farm. Since I'm the seed lady here, uh, I am deciding on which seeds we plant. And uh, we're planting all the heirloom seed varieties from uh, the seed, our Palestine Heirloom Seed Library. And, uh, and which ones are they? Uh, we are planting mluchie, um, which is a kind of jute, uh, okra, corn, uh, zucchini, um, we're 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 gonna plant some of these um, green pumpkins. They're actually very good to plant next to zucchinis. They protect it from uh, diseases. Um, and I'm planting this year something very special and dear to me, which is not a native of Palestine, but it's an heirloom uh, zinnia. They're heirloom Peruvian zinnias that were given to me as a Christmas present uh, from my lifelong friend and mentor, John Sabella, uh, who actually uh, makes these seeds every year from his zinnias. So I was very happy today. I just saw that they sprouted. But what we are doing, we're doing now is we are planting the summer crops. But before we uh, planted the summer crops, we had to uh, harvest the seeds from the winter crops. So this winter, I planted spinach and uh, arugula. And let me show you here. This is the spinach and it has dried. So we ate so much spinach. And it's amazing when you grow these heirloom varieties, you consume zero water, zero resources, really. It's uh, amazing. So I planted this spinach uh, last year in, I think it was October, and I used zero irrigation, and I ate spinach until um, early April. We were eating a lot of spinach. Uh, and this is the heirloom spinach, and I think the seed is quite magical because um, Unlike the commercial spinach you and the hybrid spinach you find in the market, look, it's quite spiky actually. So if you touch it, it kind of hurts to, to pick it out, but it's now dried and ready to be collected. Uh, this one is not drying off. Yeah. 
so look they look like little planets it's just really like a fantasy world it's beautiful look here these are some of what we collected from last time so i'm kind of a lazy farmer <laughs> i'm an aspiring lazy i'm an aspiring farmer who's lazy but um uh, yeah, I have who, to. Who kind of revels in, in the in the uh, the magic of it? Yeah, you you find it to be um, kind of mysterious and elegant and. Uh, I find it to be quite artful and imaginative. I find so much art in nature, and I think that it is an art. It's just so. Um, you kind of want to bow down in awe of. Of like, I'll show you where I'm planting um, the seedlings for the eggplants and the tomatoes, and how the seed just pushes uh, from inside this this sprout. And it's just the, when you look at it, you're like, who came up with that? It's just really, really magical, uh, and and it's life. So in a way, like. You, when you look at it, you understand the mystery, you're right, the mystery of life, but also the, the power. It's so powerful, like from the seed, how life is so powerful. It pushes and pushes and comes out. And that there is no death because, look, we, we, we are now, we ate so much spinach. We put the seed last year and we ate so much spinach. And now we're collecting these dry seeds and they look as if they are dead, but in fact, uh, next October, I'm gonna put them in the ground and they're gonna sprout again. So it makes you think, you know, is there such a thing as death? And if we, as humans, we sort of symbolize a lot of nature as well, we are part of it. I think that everything is a metaphor and it feels to me that human death is not even real because we always are also being recycled and cycled and recycled. Vivian Sansour is a farmer, seed saver, artist, and entrepreneur in Beit Jawa, just east of Bethlehem, south of Jerusalem, in occupied Palestine. Mohammed Saleh runs a permaculture design company called Mostadam. Together, they're growing a food forest on Vivian's family terrace. Come here, ladies and gentlemen, listen to the song. Sing it to you right, but you might think it's wrong. May make you mad, but I mean no harm. It's just about the runners on Penny's Farm. It's the hard times in the country out on Penny's Farm. You move out on Penny's Farm, plant a little crop of bagger and a little crop of corn. Come around and see you're gonna flit and plot till you get yourself a mortgage on everything you got. It's the hard times in the country out on Penny's Farm. And George Penny got a flattering mouth Move you to the country in a little log house Got no windows but the cracks in the wall He'll work you all summer and rob you in the fall It's the hard times in the country Out on Penny's farm You 
go in the field, you'll work all day. Wave tonight, but you get no pay. Promise to meet our little bucket of lard. It's hard to be a runner on Penny's farm. It's hard times in the country, out on Penny's farm. Yeah, George Penny, he'll come into town With a wagon load of peaches, not a one of them sound Got to have his money or somebody's check Pay him for a bushel and you don't get a peck It's a hard times in the country Out on Penny's farm George Penny Reynolds, they'll come into town With the hands in the pockets and the head hanging down Go in the store and the merchant will say Your mortgage is due and I'm looking for my pay It's a hard times in the country Out on Penny's farm Down in his pocket with a trembling hand Can't pay you all, but I'll pay you what I can Then to the telephone, the merchant make a call He'll put you on chain gang, don't pay it all It's hard times in the country Out on Penny's farm The Bentley Brothers, possibly from North Carolina, recorded this tune in Johnson City, Tennessee on October 23, 1929. Not a bad recording. Bob Dylan appropriated the catchy refrain in one of his earliest tunes, Hard Times in New York Town. Then came Maggie's Farm. Strasburg Civic Hospital is France's fourth largest medical institution with a staff of over 10,000. It really is a small town in the heart of lovely Strasbourg, the crossroads of Europe. In the basement of the hospital's admin building, you'll find something most hospitals don't have, a wine cellar, a highly reputed and well-stocked wine cellar. Here, the finest wines from France's Alsace region are available at a reasonable cost. I took a tour of Strasbourg Civic Hospital's Cave Historique in the company of its director, Thibault Baldinger. Standing in a doorway inside the grounds of Strasbourg Civic Hospital... It's one of France's oldest medical institutions, as large as a small town, with a staff of over 10,000. In the basement of the hospital's administration building, something most hospitals don't have, a wine cellar. A highly reputed and well-stocked wine cellar. Here, the finest wines from France's Alsace region are available at a reasonable cost. Strasbourg Hospital's historic wine cellar is a tourist destination, and you don't have to buy wine. You can just wander through the cool, dimly lit cellar, gazing at giant oak casks, reading about how Strasbourg Hospital got into the wine business 600 years ago. Paying for health care was what it was all about. Hello! Hello! Thibault Baldinger, the cellar's director, explains... This cell has been created because you had only 10% of the people that were healed in the hospital that could actually afford to pay their health care in gold. All the other ones, they were actually forced to pay with animals, sometimes houses, sometimes lands, or sometimes vineyards. And that's why the hospital became one of the biggest vineyards owner and landowner of the whole Alsace region. 
Thibaut leads me into the heart of the cellar. It's nice and cool down here. Absolutely. Groundwater levels are high in Strasbourg, so like the city's famous cathedral, this wine cellar is built on a solid foundation. Here's actually the, the, the historical heart of the cellar, and that's the first stone, so the, the pillar over there that was laid in 1395. And so under each of these pillars, uh, you have around 15 trees that are between four and a half to five meters tall. They're shaped like crayons, and they are put one after another. Fondation sur pilotis. And so that's really typical from Strasbourg. A few steps away, a humongous oak cask lies on its side. It's empty now, but once contained a vast quantity of red Burgundy wine. 26,000 litres, so 34,000 bottles of Pomar inside that barrel. It just makes me smile. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Have a, nice, have a nice weekend, though. <laughs> Down a long corridor, there's plenty of wine that can be imbibed, produced by 27 vintners from across Alsace. Riesling, Pinot Gris, Gewürztraminer, Sylvaner, Pinot Blanc, Pinot Noir, Pinot Auxerrois. And we do have some special grape types. We do have a very specific um, appellation that's called Clevener de Heiligenstein, so it's a little bit difficult to, uh, to say, but that appellation is the only place in Alsace, so the small town of Heiligenstein, where you can find this wine. And we also have um, a Grand Cru that's a very typical Grand Cru because it's the Grand Cru Kefferkopf. And that's a Grand Cru in, located in Amershuir. And, um, and with the Grand Cru Kefferkopf, it's the only blended Grand Cru. So you have 60% of Gewürztraminer and 40% of other grape types. Sticking out of each cask, a shiny spigot that opens with a key. We've got a key that's opening the, the tap, and this key is called the Paradise Key. Paradise Key. Because you can actually open the paradise that's inside. Alsatian vintners have paid for these casks to be refurbished, but the hospital's wine cellar is a money-making business. Storage costs must also be covered. We can't ask them to pay one more time because they already paid for the renovation of the barrels. So uh, we actually thought like, well, they're going to pay us like in 1395. They're going to, to pay us in nature good. And so in French, we've got a French expression that says liquid money. This is where the cellar's wine shop comes in. A small percentage of the wine maturing in these casks will be bottled for sale. Some physicians are uncomfortable with the arrangement, Thibault says. On a recent visit to wine-rich Bordeaux, French President Francois Hollande actually cautioned the French not to overdrink. Still, fine wine is prestigious in France, none more so than the 540-year-old wine stored at the very end of the cellar an old, very, very old Alsatian white wine. And this wine is a wine from 1472. 1472? Yeah. Behind a locked steel gate, 400 liters of the precious fluid sit tranquilly in a specially built oak cask. And so here we are. A visit to this medieval treasure is the high point of cellar tours. Inside of this barrel is the wine of 1472. What's going to become of it? Will, will it be bottled? Oh, no, no, no. no. It's just, um, this wine hasn't got any price. We can't do any pricing because it's just like, it's the only one, it's the oldest one that's kept in an oak barrel. So it's like one of those incredibly expensive bottles of wine that you buy, uh, you get for your wedding that you never drink. Well, um, you keep even it? more, even more, because 
you, we, there, there's not enough space on, uh, on the credit card to put, uh, to put zero to buy it, and the hospital don't want to sell it. Strasbourg Hospital's enological treasure is too acidic to drink, but you can smell the cork, a thick wooden plug, actually. Oh, that smells very nice. A little bit like haze, a little bit like hazelnuts, fruit liquor, vanilla, maybe um, smokiness also. Woody, obviously, because the wood is just very young. And uh, that's what's really typical because you also got a little bit of um, freshly cut herbs. Nearby, something most tourists don't visit. Going to do, I'm just looking for the keys. Um... First, we cross a room filled with bottled wine sitting on shelves. It's a, a room that's closed to the public, actually, because it's now our, um, our wine storage room. It smells nice. Behind another locked door, the cellar's darkest secret. That's a right here, so that's the second dissection room, and the first one is just over here. Here, hundreds of years ago, human corpses were dissected by doctors and students. In this window, you had corpses that were falling from, and then they were get on a, get it on a table and then opened to see how the, how the human body was working. These days, Strasbourg Hospital and its medieval wine cellar work hand-in-hand hand on much more pleasant activities. It looks like a cremant. Yes. And that's, that's, uh, that's our house cremant, that we call it. La cuvée des hospitaliers. Annual blind tasting to see which wine ends up getting finished here takes place in January. Until then, Strasbourg Hospital's historic wine cellar is open to visitors from 8.30 in the morning till 5.30 in the afternoon, Mondays to Fridays, Saturdays till noon. Merci beaucoup. Merci à vous. For more information about Strasbourg Civic Hospital's famous wine cellar and wines, go to greenplanetmonitor.net. For those who love white wine, it's definitely a tourist destination in one of Europe's most beautiful cities. This is wine-drinking man, Carolina Rose, accompanied on guitar and vocal by her brother, little Sonny Parker.
Parker Wells from North Mount, North Carolina, was a featured artist in Victoria Spivy's Blues Review. Spivy gave her the name Carolina Rose. You're listening to The Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. With atmospheric carbon dioxide now 403 parts per million and rising, CO2 emissions climbing 2% a year, authorities are now saying Paris's least constraining 2-degree target is now probably toast. As the proportion of the crisis humanity faces becomes clearer, solutions of all sorts are being put forward. Amongst the most intriguing, mitigating our emissions through geoengineering. Carbon capture and storage is one such approach, a drop in the bucket of what needs to be carried out, some say. What most intrigues Peter Kellerman a geochemist at Columbia University in New York City, is turning CO2 into stone or helping it happen. I spoke with Kellerman by Skype. I'm wondering, just to start off, what the difference is between this particular technique and conventional carbon capture and storage? Well, it's pretty funny to call it conventional because, of course, no one's doing it at scale. But um, I guess what you're asking about is capture of CO2 at uh, power plants, for example, coal-fired power plants or steel mills, and then injecting it at high pressure into subsurface pore space. Um, you're doing a, maybe a million tons a year in Canada, and um, current output by humans of CO2 to the atmosphere is 40 billion tons a year. So um, there's really nothing conventional about carbon capture and storage, and it's not being done at a scale that's commensurate with human emissions yet. But in any case, uh, storage in solid form is different from storage in pore space because uh, solid minerals like calcite and magnesite are uh, the constituents of limestone. It's permanent, more or less, on a human time scale. It's non-toxic, and it's inert. It doesn't go anywhere. There are many places around the Earth, where rocks from the Earth's interior, the mantle, have been um, transported upwards by plate tectonics and exposed by faulting and erosion. 
and so they're in contact with air and surface water. And in the natural process, when, when those things come in contact, uh, carbon dioxide is naturally uh, absorbed from the air and um, combines with calcium and magnesium in the rocks to form solid carbonate minerals like limestone or marble. And um, so uh, that process happens naturally and the challenge then would be to uh, accelerate that natural process, perhaps uh, as simple as uh, uh, drilling holes and inducing thermal convection of water through the shallow subsurface within, let's say, a kilometer of the uh, of the surface. So it's very much in the same way that you might envision a geothermal power plant circulating uh, cold, dense water going down and hot buoyant water coming up to uh, generate electricity. This is about the same. You, you'd have cold CO2-rich water going down and depositing uh, limestone at depth and then returning to the surface. And there are researchers uh, doing tests now to, uh, to, to um, pump uh, carbon dioxide into, into basalt um, uh, offshore. Uh, that's, offshore. that's in Iceland, and that's not uh, my project, but uh, there's an experiment called CarbFix. That's quite different. Um, there, uh, Reykjavik Energy uh, has a big, uh, they produce a lot of CO2. The uh, hot volcanic rocks in Iceland that they use to generate uh, electric power um, also have a lot of dissolved CO2 in that water. And when the water comes to the surface, that CO2 is dissolved as gas. And so uh, rather than just vent that to the atmosphere, which is what they've always done, uh, Reykjavik Energy decided to uh, take that CO2 and pressurize it and inject it into the subsurface. So that's not carbon capture, but it is storage. And um, so they're injecting it into a lava flow uh, where it is mineralized and forming limestone, and they showed that it's a pretty small experiment, but they injected uh, 200 tons of CO2, and it was pretty much all uh, lost along the flow path by forming solid minerals, so that when they get when the water gets to their uh, uh, sampling well, they, there's almost no carbon remaining in it. Tell me more about your research in Oman. Well, we uh, we've been working for decades. Uh, Oman is kind of a wonderful natural laboratory. It's um, there's a the world's largest piece of oceanic crust and upper mantle has been thrust up onto the Arabian continent there, and tilted, and eroded into these beautiful canyons. And so you can walk along these canyons and, in essence, uh, descend 20 kilometers into the Earth's interior. And so that's drawn a lot of people who are interested in studying uh, the formation of the ocean crust and uh, processes of lava formation and transport through the Earth's mantle over the years. And um, then, as I said, we got interested in this low-temperature uh, weathering process there. Right now, we have a drilling project going on with about 200 scientists uh, enrolled, and um, a multi-year project where we're obtaining rock cores and then analyzing them in the laboratory. And that's involving scientists who are interested in a whole range of things, so not, not only weathering, but the origin and 
evolution of ocean crust, subsurface uh, microbial ecosystem, all kinds of things. So what what is the potential um, for um, incorporating enhanced storage of carbon dioxide into into uplifted formations of this sort? How, what's the what's the, what, what what sorts of volumes? What sorts of volumes of carbon dioxide or amounts of carbon dioxide could conceivably be stored in this way. Right. So in Oman alone, the the rocks from the Earth's mantle that are within a few kilometers of the surface, and so they're accessible, more or less, to drilling, um, could take up about 40 trillion tons of carbon dioxide. So that's about uh, a thousand years of uh, human output at current rates. Over what period of time could they do that? Well, right. So as, as I was going to say, the capacity is huge, and that's just Oman. So worldwide, it's probably, I don't know, five or ten times that much. But the, the issue is the rate. Uh, the calculations that we've done indicate that uh, you can do about maybe 10,000 tons per well. And the, it's not, uh, it doesn't scale in a particularly elegant way. So if you want to do a billion tons, you need a lot of wells. Uh, so, for example, uh, if you wanted to do a billion tons a year, you would need about as many boreholes as there are currently operating uh, oil boreholes in, uh, in the United States. And typically when you do the math, any method of carbon dioxide capture and storage scales that way. So let's just, for example, um, human output might be 40 billion tons a year. If you wanted to do 10% of that by carbon storage, um, that would be 4 billion tons a year. 4 billion tons a year is about how much oil and gas uh, the fossil fuel industry moves around on the surface of the earth every year. So uh, the infrastructure to move 4 billion tons of CO2 would look a lot like the infrastructure for uh, transporting oil and gas. It's big. It's huge. And that's kind of unavoidable. So uh, that's that's why um, there's nothing conventional about this, and that's why society hasn't really gotten to the point where uh, we're willing to allocate the resources to um, achieve carbon capture and storage at a billion ton a year scale because uh, it's a daunting prospect. And um, I would say, in general, people are not yet persuaded at the gut level that it's worthwhile. And meanwhile, of course, as as you've you've said on a couple of occasions, uh, global emission of CO two equivalents is something like forty gigatons a year, and it's going up by about two percent every year. That's right; it's increasing at two or three percent a year, uh, keeping pace almost perfectly with total uh, energy consumption globally. And um, you know, it, it is a very very worrisome prospect. The um, the doubling time for energy consumption uh, throughout the 20th century was about uh, 20 or 30 years, and um, that's also true for CO2 emissions. And um, so, if that continues, there's every reason to believe that energy consumption will continue to grow at two or three percent per year in this century, because, of course. Um, you know, hundreds of millions of people still lack refrigeration, 
and uh, in some cases, electric light. So um, most developing countries plan to continue to have uh, energy consumption grow. And in turn, that suggests that if we don't change our uh, mode of generating uh, energy, uh, that means that the um, output of CO2 might be doubling every 30 years or so through this century. If that occurs, then um, our children will see CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere double. And um, most climate scientists believe that that would be uh, very damaging, not really sustainable. So then, Professor Kellerman, how, how do you how do you frame, uh, given all this, um, the, the potential impacts or significance of um, geoengineering? Would it be fair to refer to advanced carbon capture as kind of a geoengineering project? Sure, it's pretty benign compared to um, uh, filling the stratosphere with sulfur dioxide droplets and reflecting sunlight back into space, but there's no doubt about it that the term geoengineering would be an apt description of um, taking a billion tons of CO2 every year and turning it into rock. Uh, so that's that's where it goes. I think that, I mean, what I tell students these days is that the best thing by far to do is to um, accelerate the transition to renewable uh, forms of energy, mainly, I would say, solar. It's by today's standards, an inexhaustible resource. And so um, we're limited by our ability to store energy over day-night cycles, but also, and most importantly, seasonal cycles. But I would say that um, the best thing to do is to focus on that energy storage problem and solve it. Um, it looks like uh, that won't be sufficient to uh, maintain the atmosphere at what we might consider to be a sustainable greenhouse gas concentration, so let's say 500 ppm of CO2. But as a geologist, I won't argue whether it's 500 or 600. It's, it's kind of in the noise. So there's a decent chance that the uh, transition to re renewable energy, uh, plus minus nuclear power, will not be fast enough, and then we will have overshot uh, sustainable CO2 concentration in the air, and that's when um, large-scale capture from air and storage would be, be appropriate. Peter Kellerman is Arthur D. Stork Memorial Professor of Earth and Environmental Sciences at the Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory at Columbia University, New York City. And that's it for today's edition of the Green Blues Show. The latest news, a bit of blues. Listen to us on CKUW 95.9 FM, University of Winnipeg Radio. Subscribe to our podcast at greenplanetmonitor.net. The Green Blues Show is created by Earth Chronicle Productions in cooperation with CKUW 95.9 FM. We're both based in Winnipeg, Canada. I'm David Kattenberg. See you again next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.